Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister says China-EU summit will give a boost of confidence and draw a blueprint for the development of bilateral relations. China rebukes Moody's biased credit outlook cut, saying concerns over growth prospects are unnecessary. Palestinian president rejects Israel's plan to occupy parts of Gaza and calls for intervention from Washington. And former British Prime Minister David Cameron's trip to the United States marks his the first return to frontline politics at the new British Foreign Secretary. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. The summit between China and the European Union will give a boost of confidence and draw a blueprint for the development of bilateral relations. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made the remarks during a meeting with envoys and diplomats of the EU and its member states in Beijing. Wang emphasized that China's policy toward the EU remains stable and will not change due to any single incident, as is in line with the trend of multipolarity in the world and a greater democracy in international relations. He said leaders from the two sides will have an in-depth exchange of strategic and global issues concerning China-EU relations at the 24th China-EU summit on Thursday. So for more on the summit and China-EU relations, joining us on the line is Dr. Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wang. Thank you. Before we delve further into China-EU summit, this year also marked the 20th anniversary of the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and the EU. How would you assess the current state of the bilateral relations? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the China-EU relation has dates back a long time. Of course, uh, uh, this is uh, 25 years they have set up this kind of a mechanism. But also, it's the 20th uh, strategic, uh, uh, you know, meeting that's going to uh, held, and this is also very important that uh, it's the you know since pandemic for the fir- first time in four years that leaders and has come to China now and and meet uh, top leaders in China face to face. So what I think, you know, uh, traditionally China and uh, EU has a such enjoyed such a great, great relationship. They have the longest the civilizations. They have they are, they are, they are they are really bonded, you know, they are, uh, are connected through the, uh, there's no borders actually, you know, there's no sea or, or, or anything separate, the big continent of Eurasia, they are, they are connected. And also the, the, the people-to-people exchange has dated back many years ago, we have met so many Europeans travel to China, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the last thousand years, and, and Chinese uh, vice versa. Uh, travel to the uh, European countries. So, so there are so many uh, in common. And the trade has been for many, many years, uh, uh, EU is China's largest trading partner. Uh, even now, it's still bigger than the trade with U.S. So, so I think we have jo- enjoyed the comprehensive uh, trade, economic investment, and people-to-people exchanges. And also, uh, it takes seven years for China and the EU also reach the, this comprehensive uh, agreement on investment, even though now it's been put on hold. So I would say, you know, because of the COVID and also because of the uh, uh, this Russian-Ukraine conflict, that that has actually impacted uh, this China-U.S. relation uh, because also of the big picture of the deglobalization. So there's a, a rising populism, rising nationalism that has put the China-U.S. relation at some uh, uh, tension sometimes. But I think now with people realize with the China-U.S. top leaders met, now it's time that China-U.S top leaders met and, you know, to solve all the, uh, what remained the difference and to seek the common ground and maximize the, the, the common benefit. So this is really timely and very important that we're having this high-level visit. Indeed, if we look back at the relationship between China and the EU, there have been ups and downs over the past decade. But many experts, as you suggested, uh, believe that cooperation and upward trajectory are still the main themes. So based on what has been talked about and what has been released, what are the key points or what specific areas of cooperation do both China and the EU aim to address during the summit? 
Well, I think there could be probably a, a, a few. You know, my, my personal observation is that, of course, first, I think they, they, they need uh, both, I mean, a strong support of a multilateral, uh, you know, of globalization and to some extent. You know, they are still pretty much uh, have a lot of similar, for example, they, they share a lot of similar view on, on how to reform WTO, how to support the, uh, the UN system, you know, upgrade, uh, hold this, uh, you know, the, the UN charters, and many things that the EU and China share in common. And, uh, of course, uh, economic and trade will still be a good uh, issue. Now, we have uh, so many uh, uh, trade and economic and investment uh, flows between the uh, t- uh, you know, two continents, uh, you know, two, two big, uh, big economic blocks. And, of course, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, the EU, uh, China, EU, uh, transatlantic, uh, transcontinental trans, uh, uh, railway <laughs> cargoes and employees. Uh, very busy, and, and of course uh, we have uh, a lot of a uh, lot of things that the investment issues that we still need to be re- re- resolved. I think that the EU probably concerned a bit about you know export to China, but I think you know they, they should also relax some of the uh, de-risk measures. You know, maybe some of those uh, 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 that taken uh, on, on both sides. You know, we have to get rid of those trade barriers. Probably let's get this uh, uh, investment treaty effective as, as soon as possible would be really the biggest uh, booster for the bilateral trade. And of course, uh, there's, a, there's a common uh, you know, feeling about this uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest uh, collaborating point as well. We, we've been, you know, China and the EU has been talking that for, for many, many times. And uh, there are some consensus about how to deepen that, how to find the things to, to work together. There's also issues on, on digital, on the on the global governance and on the on the uh, also the people to people exchanges, how to boost the tourism, how to boost the you know student exchanges. There's there's many issues, and, and of course on on top of that, we, there's there's uh, there's crisis happening. There's war going on in Ukraine, and then there's uh, there's uh, there's conflict in, in Palestine and Israel. So all those global issues would certainly uh, you know take attention of the Chinese and, and EU leaders. So I'm, I'm sure all those economic, cultural, you know, people-to-people, geopolitical, globalization, multilateralism, and cooperation strategic partnership, how can we deepen that? How can we stabilize that? How can we maintain a, a healthy and peaceful, prosperous world? I think that uh, will be all probably on, on the attention of the both uh, top leaders to mm. discuss uh, among this visit. As you said, climate change, green development will be one of the main focuses of their talks. So in the context of that and shaping new growth drivers for green development, what common ground do you see between China and the EU? And how can both sides leverage their strengths to lead global collaboration in addressing climate change today? Absolutely. That, that's a really uh, area full of promise. For example, uh, the uh, the uh, China EU are collaborating on that. For example, I know. For example, there's uh, there's large uh, uh, number of uh, uh, you know EU car manufacturers uh, are in China and serving a big market share in China, and then they actually upgrade their clean uh, vehicle technology here in China. They are they are the state of the art technology. They are harness that in Chinese through Chinese market and upstream and downstream supply chain that have been built up in China. So they have a strong position for the European automakers in the world because they are in China. But on the other hand, you know, China's uh, uh, top uh, uh, clean uh, uh, technology, green technology manufacturer, also in Europe, like KITL is building a factory in, uh, in Hungary, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a battery uh, factory going on there. There's a uh, you know, Fuyao Glass has, um, uh, you know, auto uh, plants in, in, in Germany. And so there's many, many Chinese uh, are investing. You know, NIO is in, in operating in Germany as well. So I see, you know, in France as well, there's, there's a lot of collaboration. So what, what I see, those on, on a healthy trend of, uh, you know, both industry in China and EU are collaborating on the clean technology. And then they are really serving both markets quite well and benefiting from that. So it's really, I think one of the issues is this so-called subsidy by, uh, by the EU that claimed on, on Chinese uh, uh, EV cars. But that is really going to impact on the uh, climate change and, uh, and also uh, hurt the target of a carbon neutral and a carbon peak. So, so I think it's important that we, we really come into more realistic uh, approach that we don't want to have a, a, a narrow tariff or trade war going on. We really want to benefit the uh, industry of both countries 
to really serving uh, both markets and become the leaders uh, working together in the auto industry to, uh, uh, for the clean uh, automobiles and, of course, EV cars you know, uh, on wind power, solar power, hydropower. You know, there's so many things that China and EU can work together. And, of course, on top of that, there's many other things that we have stipulated in the, in the China-EU investment treaty. Let's, let's realize those things. Even can do it first, like China has lifted the, the unilaterally lifted the visa restrictions for top five countries. Probably you can practice some of those uh, uh, courses uh, of, uh, you know, China can uh, practice first uh, among some EU countries that have a good cooperation with China. So, so I think many things can be done. There's, there's mm-hmm. so much uh, areas to collaborate. Dr. Wang, Wang Yi mentioned the importance of mutual respect, uh, staying calm and pragmatic and adhering to strategic thinking as lessons learned throughout the history of China-EU relations. How do you read his remarks here? What message does he try to convey, in your opinion? Absolutely. That, that's very true. I think what Minister Wang Yi has said is absolutely correct because, uh, you know, China and the EU, European countries, have a long history. We don't have, a, you know, bordering issues. We have a, a peacefully, uh, you know, since the Second World, we have a really uh, uh, built the world together. And uh, we have support, you know, European countries among one of the earliest uh, to recognize uh, People's Republic of China. And uh, they, have, they are upholding one China policy quite uh, tightly. Uh, we don't have any uh, uh, issues of uh, seeking supremacy or this trap, uh, as, uh, as my friend Grandma Allison was talking about. Mm-hmm. So China and the EU, you know, they don't have a, 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 you know, they don't have this kind of problem. So, so strategically, they have a strategic partnership, and they should really uh, work on these uh, beneficial uh, uh, points of, of many fields, and they can really work together. So, what I hope is that you know we can probably lift more uh, visa restric- uh, restriction for EU countries. Let's apply that to the EU uh, OEU member countries, and uh, and then we can really ushering a new era of the people-to-people exchange. And I think this strategic partnership can really be beneficial to, uh, to the uh, uh, you know both uh, people in both uh, bilateral uh, uh, regions. And of course, uh, Chinese tourism can really f- uh, have more tourism to visit Europe, which has such a, a, a great civilizations, a culture, heritage, and mm-hmm. many tourist sites. Very attractive, Paris, uh, you know, Spain, and uh, and uh, Berlin, and, and you name it. You know, so many places to, to visit. So, so I think there's a, you know, we, we need a top leadership to create a good atmosphere, a friendly a gesture, a, a, a strong shake of the hand, and that sends, you know, many signals to the ordinary people. Okay, our top leaders are talking, are meeting very cordially, very friendly. Why not we are, you know, become more friendly among, our, among the people-to-people exchanges? So this is, uh, this is really great. I mean, the head of uh, state diplomacy always works, and, uh, and I hope that... Uh, you know, those can be really uh, uh, very uh, effectively promoting our bilateral relations. Thanks, Dr. Wang, for your time and insightful analysis. That's Dr. Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. You are listening to Rose Today. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, chief economist of Hansen Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to Road Today. China's Ministry of Finance has expressed disappointment with Moody's decision to change the country's government credit rating outlook from stable to negative. A finance official dismissed Moody's concerns about China's growth prospects and physical sustainability, stating that the Chinese economy is steadily recovering amid the global economic slowdown. The official highlighted positive predictions from international institutions, including the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, all supporting China's ability to achieve its growth target of around 5% this year. So to talk more on this and China's economic outlook, let's have Dr. Yao Shujie, Changhong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Um, 
China firmly pushed back against the decision, as many economists calling the change um, biased and unprofessional, uh, grossly exaggerated or or manufactured risks and challenges for the Chinese economy. What's your take on the decision made by Moody? How accurate do you find its assessment of China's growth prospects? Well, obviously, I'm also very, uh, <laughs> you know, very. Uh, you know, unhappy about the prediction by Moody because mm-hmm. the Chinese economy is doing so well, particularly after the the COVID nineteen. You know, even during the COVID nineteen, China has been performing uh, spectacularly well compared to all the major economy in the world. China uh, hasn't actually, you know, experienced any negative growth over the last four years since the. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic started. And this year is actually a very strong recovery, although there are some fluctuations and uncertainty. But the first three quarters of 5.2% in real economic growth is very spectacular. Uh, it's remarkable in the sense that uh, many of the major economies are still fluctuating, suffering from high inflation, uh, rapid depreciation of their own domestic currency, including, you know, subjects as Japan or, or the United Kingdom. Uh, those countries are traditionally, uh, you know, the very strong industrialized economy. They are really in difficulty. And even America itself uh, is suffering from high inflation. Uh, so China's uh, domestic situation is very stable in many respects. First of all, the consumer price index is very stable. I mean, we don't have a high inflation as in other major economies I just mentioned. And secondly, the manufacturing sector is doing very well. And certainly, Chinese import and export is very steady, and it's accounting quite a big uh, proportion of international trade. And Chinese car export this year is most likely to surpass Japan and Germany to become the largest uh, you know, vehicle exporter in the world. China also exports many other commodities, of course. So I, I don't think there's any slowdown in the economy. And given the size of China now, we are talking about you know, 121 trillion, almost 18 trillion US dollar in real terms. And this year, plus another 5.2%, I think Chinese economy is pointing to uh, to become even stronger. Mm-hmm. And the fourth quarter will be a turning point for uh, this year and next year. I, I think the fourth quarter will be even better uh, because it's toward the end of the Chinese, uh, the, the, the end of the year and the beginning of the Chinese Spring Festival. There will be a stronger demand and manufacturing activity is now uh, better than than average of the 50 points predicted by uh, PMI. So um, at this time, the the Moody trying to you know pull some uh, a bucket of cold water on the Chinese uh, you know credit rating, which is uh, pretty uh, unusual. But mm-hmm. I'm sure it, it doesn't matter really because there are many other uh, you know assessors about the, the the economy sentiment. And Moody is just one of them. The mm-hmm. Chinese domestic uh, assessor also uh, pretty positively. As you mentioned, the World Bank, IMF, OECD, or all the major, uh, you know, multi- multilateral organization, fully, you know, you know, fully authoritative in terms of predicting economy growth. I don't think Chinese economy would go down to as low as four percent predicted by Moody. I'm sure mm-hmm. it would be much higher than. Four percent, and and this can be seen from the fourth quarter that will come out, uh, in, in the next month. Mm-hmm. Professor, could you please elaborate more on which factors do you believe are crucial in determining the trajectory of China's economic performance? Because Moody's mentioned structurally and persistently lower media-term economic growth in China as a reason for the negative outlook. But as you said, other international institutions predict China's economic performance to achieve its growth target of around 5%. What are the specific factors in determining the trajectory of China's economic performance? 
Well, the major, um, you know, driver of economic growth in any economy is uh, investment, yeah, consumption, uh, particularly the private sector uh, consumption, and also manufacturing uh, and export. Uh, now, manufacturing in China, I, as I mentioned, is quite steady, steady, nearly 5% growth, and service sector is now becoming a, a, a biggest driver of Chinese economy, which is uh, you know, very steady. And import and export, yes, in the short term, China uh, may see some sort of uh, fluctuation, but it's fluctuating at a very much higher level than the pre-COVID-19 uh, you know, uh, pandemic period. Uh, China is facing difficulty. Nobody uh, can ignore the fact that uh, China is such a large economy. If China didn't face any difficulty, I would think it's quite abnormal. But the Chinese economy is very resilient of uh, confronting with any challenges. Mm. Especially China has a, a, a gigantic domestic market itself. You know, China consists of so many regional economies. Any one province or metropolitan city is bigger than a medium-sized country in the world. And the domestic circulation itself uh, is, is a guarantee that uh, China can sustain the growth. And also, China has making significant progress in investment, R&D, uh, research and development. Uh, China spent 3.1 trillion renminbi last year doing research and development. And you can see uh, China's scientific research, technological innovation, and also application of new uh, purchases in the factory floor. And also due to the digital economy, the, the automation, and also AI, China is the front runner. It, it, and with the massive economy of scale and scope economy, China have the unique advantage of utilizing this new technology, which have a huge potential scope for China to extend their investment. And I, I'm quite confident that in the medium and even the longer term, China have the capability uh, to sustain uh, a significant momentum of the economy growth for the future to come. Plus, China's attitude is really open. China mm -hmm. always welcomes foreign investors uh, and, and in, cross-border invest, investment, either in or out, is now become the major driver of China's economic development. And uh, a lot of foreign investors are very keen in coming to China to make money. Professor, you mentioned the resilience and the potential of the Chinese economy. Then how do you assess the impact of Moody's recent change on the country's financial stability and investor confidence? Well, I think this, um, this, this change is quite, uh, you know, subjective. It's not really objective. So China should have shared confidence rather than being uh, so much affected by the, by the downgrading. Mm -hmm. of, of Moody, China should have confidence to to prove that China uh, uh, can 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 sustain the kinds of stability and manage the financial risk, uh, not only in the short term but also in in the longer term. Of of course, China cannot be complacent of any risk, and the government at the central and regional level they have meeting again and again how to measure the risk how to stop the risk factors and so on and so forth in whatever sector, including the housing sector, which is experiencing difficulty. But it, it turned out to be actually quite manageable. So uh, I'm still, you know, believe that China should have the confidence to prove that Moody's downgrading is wrong. Thanks for your time and insightful opinions. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. More to come, Palestinian president rejects Israel's plans to occupy parts of Gaza and calls for intervention from Washington. You are listening to Road Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to Road Today with me, Anna, in Beijing. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has stressed that he rejects Israel's plan to separate, occupy, cut off, or isolate any part of Gaza Strip, emphasizing its integral role in the Palestinian state. In a call with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, Abbas urged a media action to halt aggression against the Palestinian people. He called for the U.S. intervention to prevent the humanitarian disasters in the West Bank, Jerusalem, and the Jordan Valley areas that are witnessing silent and planned annexation by Israel. Abbas also addressed his readiness to work for the implementation of the two-state solution based on international legitimacy resolutions. So to talk more on the new development on Israel and Palestine conflict, we're joined by Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. My pleasure. First of all, can you provide an analysis of President Abbas' stance on Israel's recent actions in Gaza and how it aligns with the broader Palestinian perspective? Of course, for, uh, because given that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, he was uh, he is the, the president of the uh, Palestinian Authority, and also he is the representative of Palestinian people in the international society. So that is why, on the one hand, he strongly rejects any Israeli uh, military intervention and occupation in the any territories of the Palestinians, including the Gaza Strip. And on the other hand, uh, Mahmoud Abbas rejects uh, the, any uh, the plan or the any uh, uh, the, 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 the implementing uh, kind of efforts uh, of copying or transferring the, the Palestinian Authority just directly uh, from the, the West Bank into the Gaza Strip, because that suggested that the Palestinian Authority would become the puppet government controlled by uh, the United States and controlled by Israel. And it's very, very humiliating uh, message for the Palestinian people. So that is why uh, it actually uh, puts uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his Palestinian authority into the very dilemma, because that, on the one hand, they have to do something to show their very strong rejection and uh, opposition against uh, the, uh, the, the Israelis and the United States, their uh, diplomacy. But on the other hand, we should become uh, realistic uh, given the very uh, 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 military actions from the, from Israel against the Gaza Strip. So that means they have to uh, compromise, they have to make concessions on the very key issues. Uh, but uh, no matter what happens, uh, we have to respect the, the choice of the Palestinian people themselves. We have to respect the leadership of uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his Palestinian authority uh, that we hope and we expect and we believe that the Palestinian Authority will make the right choice and we, based on the willingness of Palestinian people and uh, based on the future peace possibilities between Israel and Palestine. But Professor, what's your assessment of the current situation on the ground? Because the Israeli Defense Forces claim that Hamas imbeds itself among civilians, making it challenging to target a military size, while Abbas asserting that Israel is silently planning annexation, aiming to separate, occupy, cut off, or isolate parts of the Gaza Strip. What's your take on this? I think I think actually they uh, they are talking about different things uh, because from the from the perspective of Israel, uh, they uh, they are uh, they focus upon the very uh, the very on, ongoing battlefield uh, combating. Uh, so that is why they believe that the Hamas and the militias, if they, they hide it among the population, that is not correct. Uh, that uh, would become the military uh, cha- uh, challenge for the military actions for the, of the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. But uh, from the perspective of Mahmoud Abbas and the president of the Palestinian Authority, that uh, Israel is actually, uh, what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip is, is, uh, is illegal is actually the separation or the occupation uh, of the Gaza Strip and other uh, Palestinian territories. So actually, I think they are just describing different things and, uh, from different perspectives. But no matter what happened, I don't think Israel has the legal right to go to stand there for deeply into the uh, Gaza Strip without the, uh, the agreement of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian Authority 
uh, I, I don't think it, it, it really has the legal rights to claim and to blame uh, the, the, the Palestinian people and the, any, uh, any Palestinian militant and political organizations in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Professor Abbas also called for U.S. intervention on the conflict. Uh, we know historically the U.S. has been a key ally of Israel, but there is a gradual change of Washington's attitude on the conflict. Earlier, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris stated that Israel had the right to self-defense, but criticized the way how it's done. How do you view the change? Do you foresee a real shift in, in Washington's policy under the current administration? No, 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 no. The United States, I don't think they actually change anything. Although they change, they change just on their only orally, but not impractical. Because if you speak something, it would be very easy. But you have to look at what the United States is still doing. The United States actually, they hope to give pressure to the Israel uh, government to hope to hope to uh, to 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 to, uh, to 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 persuade Israel uh, in suspending their operation, military operations. But actually, on the other hand, you're still providing militant uh, military and uh, other important goods transferring from the United States directly to Israel, rather than giving a very large wave and enough humanitarian goods uh, to the Gaza Strip. So that is why I think some people, a lot of people might expect, okay, United States should do something different, and the United States division with Israel now become more and more obvious and apparent. But no, that's not true. The United States is still a very pro- important uh, the, the supporter mm-hmm. of Israeli military actions, no matter what Israeli attitudes are. So, so actually, the United States never changed. It still maintains the very, very similar stances that uh, were uh, uh, in the, at, at the very beginning of this round of war. Mm-hmm. Professor, the Palestinian president also expressed readiness to work for the implementation of the two-state solution. We know China, Arab world, and many other countries are strong supporters of this two-state solution in the long run. What's your take on the urgency and the necessity of this solution and its potential impact on the region? I think the, no matter what happens, the two-state solution should become the only key uh, principle for the future settlements of Israeli-Palestinian uh, crisis and also the, the, the future direction for Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace. On the one hand, this is the only uh, plan that could be co-accepted by uh, Israel, uh, uh, Palestine, and other international society states. This is the very only key fundamental uh, foundation for the future settlement. And on the other hand, this, uh, under the principle of the two-state solution, the, the East Jerusalem status could be uh, well uh, settled, and also the, the border could be well settled, and the two-state solution would be well settled. And Israelis with neighboring states' relations will also be well settled. So uh, I think this is the only way that uh, Israelis should accept, and also this is the only principle that uh, international society should push forward. But will the solution be supported by the U.S.? How do you see the current U.S. administration's approach to the two-state solution? I think the United States actually just ignore it or, or play the very uh, indifferent attitudes towards this two-state solution because on the one hand, the United States' last attempt to bring the two sides together to sit down, to talk, and to uh, in the direction of reaching the uh, just and long-term uh, peace between Israel and Palestinians, that, uh, that occurred about 10 years ago. We have, we have to imagine if the United States really cared about the, 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 the peace between Israel and Palestinian people, they should do more, and they should actually continue their efforts for peace during the past decades, but actually they are doing nothing. And then, on the other hand, the United States pushed forward some plans, such as uh, the, 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 the plan of the, 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 the century of peace, a century, a piece of deal in the century that uh, pushed forward by, by Donald Trump, the administration, they are actually destroying the confidence of the Palestinian people towards the peace with Israelis. So, so I think the United States should do their job, should mm-hmm. uphold their responsibilities as the world's biggest power, rather than just ignore or pay the very indifferent attitudes that would then uh, finally benefit, uh, that will finally harm everybody, including Israelis and the United States, in match in the region. Thank you very much, Professor. Appreciate your time and analysis. That's Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You are listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. 
In my opinion, The Wall Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The Wall Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. This is Road Today. Former UK Prime Minister David Cameron kicks off the visit to Washington, marking his first return to frontline politics as the new British Foreign Secretary. The Foreign Office in London said Cameron will pledge the UK's unwavering support for Ukraine and will discuss the conflict in Gaza. He will also underscore the shared missions of defending values for mutual security and prosperity with the United States. The Foreign Secretary is also also expected to meet U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Republican and Democratic congressional leaders during his two-day visit. So for more on David Cameron's trip as the new British Foreign Secretary to the United States, joining us on the line is Duncan Barlett, a former BBC correspondent and editor of Asian Affairs magazine. Thanks for joining us, Duncan. Good to speak with you again. First of all, what do you make of Cameron's first return to frontline politics at the new British Foreign Secretary visiting the United States? Well, David Cameron's role as Foreign Secretary came as an enormous surprise, actually, because nobody really expected him to return to the cabinet. He wasn't even a member of parliament, actually, when the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak asked him to take up this role. So in a remarkable series of events, he was then uh, given a a place in the House of Lords, unelected, uh, and then given a place uh, on the cabinet, uh, representing Britain at the very highest level, including these meetings uh, with Anthony Blinken in Washington today. Now, having said that, I can see the reasoning behind it. He's got a lot of political experience, Mm -hmm. uh, including uh, 11 years as leader of the Conservative Party. Um, And he's probably going to be very skilled at being able to manage these uh, relationships, the most important of which is with the United States, because Britain regards itself uh, as a very firm ally. In fact, America's most resourced and reliable ally uh, in Europe. Many people believe that Cameron will make changes to the current foreign policies of the UK once in office. How do you see him approaching the relationship with the United States? Well, what he said about this trip is that it's going to be primarily focused on the situation in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And actually, Lord Cameron did, in fact, go to Ukraine, uh, where he met uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, a a few weeks ago. That was one of his first overseas missions, just a few days after he took the job. So Britain is basically saying that uh, it's going to continue to uh, provide humanitarian and defence uh, funding for Ukraine, but a particular focus at the moment for the humanitarian aid for the Ukrainians themselves, and especially vulnerable people, women, girls, older people, people with disabilities and so on. Um, but in terms of the Middle East, I think Britain is divided, actually, in opinion, because officially the government has been uh, holding back from calling for a ceasefire at the United Nations. But you can see from the from the marches and the uh, media coverage that that's not a position which is shared by everybody. In fact, there are a lot of people who are quite against the government's position on that. And overall, actually, the government's got some quite severe problems because this Conservative uh, Party is trailing behind the Labour Party in the opinion polls, which makes one wonder, really, actually, whether it can hang on to power if there's an election in 2024. Duncan, speaking of that, David Cameron's commitment to providing unwavering support for Ukraine uh, recently is noteworthy that Washington has indicated a financial constraint in supporting Ukraine. What challenges do you perceive for both Britain and the U.S. in the current Ukraine crisis? And how do you envision their strategies to further assist Ukraine in light of their financial limitations? Well, I think you make a very good point there, actually, which is that in the United States, the policy of the president, which is to continue to provide a huge amount of money for the defense of Ukraine, is not necessarily one that is supported by all the politicians. And that's why um, he's he's not found it easy to get uh, that through through Congress. So I think there is a bit of a pushback against uh, um, uh, the, the, the president's position on, on Ukraine within the United States. 
Here, I think it's simpler. Actually, there is widespread support for the Ukrainian cause within uh, the House of Commons uh, from all the political parties uh, in the UK. Uh, the, the more controversial issue, actually, is um, Britain's relationship with China. And I'm very interested in how Lord Cameron deals with that one, because, you know, today we've got the arrival of the leaders of the uh, European uh, institutions, the European Commission and the EU are in Beijing today for the start of two days of talk with Xi Jinping. Now, Lord, Lord Cameron, when he was prime minister, was very enthusiastic about uh, Britain's relationship with China. He, he, he said it was going to be a golden era. Things have changed since then. So I'll be very interested to know uh, what Mr. Cameron and Mr. Blinken discuss in terms of Britain's relationship with China during their meeting in Washington today. Uh, let's set up for another time to dig further in China-UK relations. And according to British Foreign Office, the two sides will also discuss the conflict in Gaza, I mean, between UK and the United States, stressing standing united in the Middle East for long-term security and stability. Uh, given the fact that United States and Britain are allies of Israel, historically speaking, what's your analysis of these remarks here? Well, I think you can say that uh, America is definitely a staunch ally of Israel. I think Britain's position is probably a bit more nuanced. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, when Rishi Sunak went to Israel following the Hamas attacks on Israel in early October, he said to the Israeli prime minister at that point, we want you to win. But you see, nobody expected the fighting to continue for two months. And nobody really expected the uh, level of civilian casualties that we've seen uh, in Gaza. I mean, you know, 14,000 people dead, is it? Including many, many children. That's caused outrage and frustration internationally. So I think Britain is in a difficult position, as indeed actually is the US and the European countries. They don't want to uh, back down in terms of their um, support for Israel. But I'm sure that most people are really wondering whether the approach of the Israeli Defense Forces and the bloodshed that's being caused in the last two months is justifiable. Thanks, Duncan, for shedding light on David Cameron's recent visit to Washington. That's Duncan Barlett, former BBC correspondent and editor of Asian Affairs magazine. This is Row Today. Stay with us. Elon Musk artificial intelligence startup XAI has filed with the U.S. securities regulator to raise $1 billion U.S. billion in an equity offering. Musk created XAI earlier this year to try to compete with other generative AI companies, including OpenAI, where Musk was a co-founder. Despite his work in AI, Musk has expressed deep reservations about the technology. He was among a group of researchers and tech industry industry leaders who called for developers to pause the training of powerful AI models in March. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Andy Mark, a tech analyst and a senior research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. So Andy, actually Elon Musk, artificial intelligence company XAI has filed with the SEC to raise one billion US dollars in an equity offering. How do you explain this fundraising move now? Well, if anyone's been following the news, um, we can see very clearly just how hot a topic artificial intelligence is. And whenever there's uh, exciting, important technological developments, usually tidal waves of money follow. And this is only more true with Elon Musk because he is so high profile, so able to capture the media spotlight and people's imaginations. So I think this is uh, not at all a surprise. And fundraising for AI sector remains a bright spot for startups this year following uh, OpenAI's launch of ChatGPT last year. So do you think the XAI, the company, can easily get the fresh capital from equity investors? Well, what does it mean for the company's further development? Well, the ability to raise funds, of course, is important. And generally, when there's an important technological development, many, many investors uh, want to jump in hoping to back the next Google 
um, the next 10 cents, etc. Mm-hmm. So as a trend, you know, we're seeing, as you mentioned, Zhao Yang, a lot of capital chasing these opportunities, not just open AI, but many, many companies. Now, I believe that Elon Musk has certain important, perhaps even unique advantages when it comes to the AI space. And I know we'll talk about this more. So I wouldn't expect that he would have any problems raising money for his uh, vision, his idea to do something in the AI space. Mm, so what advantages does he have? And the XAI last month launched a product, Grok, a chatbot rivaling OpenAI's ChatGPT. So tell us more about it and how do you see the competition in this field? Well, one of the interesting things about entrepreneurship is that individuals matter a lot. And Peter Thiel, who is also an enormously successful uh, investor, said this about Elon Musk, that um, someone that can start two companies that most people believe are crazy, so one of course would be SpaceX and the other is Tesla, um, really has a different understanding of risk and that someone with this kind of understanding and track record might be worth paying attention to. So I think this is one advantage that Elon Musk brings to the AI space. The second is that uh, success in AI requires computing power, which are are chips. Uh, It requires algorithms, but perhaps most importantly, it requires high quality data. And with Twitter, one could argue that he has unique, and I use this word again, unique access to what is potentially an enormously valuable data set. So when you combine these two, um, again, what highly respected investors have to say about Elon Musk's distinctive view of risk and his track record with the access to uh, the Twitter database, if I may call it that. I think that this makes him a very serious contender. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of discussions about just how fast the arm race to develop the AI technology should be moving forward. So tell us what type of technological innovation is AI and what does it mean for the labor market and the economy? Well, you know, a lot of people are worried about AI's uh, potential ability to uh, disrupt the labor market, uh, to create disinformation through deep fakes, other uh, problems like this. But I think it's actually even more profound. So what some people would argue, like Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt, that there have been three great ages of humanity. There was the age of faith, where the most important thing for humans was obedience to spiritual leaders, whether that was the pope or a priest. Um, The age of reason, where man learned to rely on his own reasoning ability. And of course, this brought us things from physics to semiconductors and space flight, et cetera. And why is AI so important? It's because now uh, AI has been proven to surpass human reason. It can do things like invent drugs, play strategy games like Go in ways that humans cannot even comprehend, but recognize it is better than what humans can do. So this is much, much more than just about jobs, about disinformation. Um, it could very much change what it actually means to be human. So I think for these reasons, people like Elon Musk are so engaged, concerned about AI. It's not just the immediate economic impact, but again, it could be an existential threat as well as opportunity for mankind. 
And a group of researchers and tech industry leaders in March called for developers to pause the training of powerful AI models. But can it really be paused? And how can the governments and AI industry work together to establish a effective way to regulate the development of AI, and at the same time without、uh, stifling the innovation and competitiveness? No, this is such an important question, Zhao Yang. So most people that follow the space believe that it will be impossible to pause because of the competitive disadvantage this would put a company or a country at if it were to unilaterally pause. And the problem is this.、Um, Again, it's just recognized that AI potentially could confer such a powerful strategic advantage on companies and countries that there is a tremendous incentive that even if、um, an entity publicly said that it was pausing, there is a huge question of trust that would others actually believe it. And they probably feel that they have to、uh, advance the technology frontier as quickly as possible, no matter what. So this is kind of a game theory prisoner's dilemma kind of situation. So it is very challenging.、Um, but on the other hand, to take an optimistic view. That if we do achieve、uh, a sort of artificial general intelligence, artificial super intelligence, this could、uh, usher in an era of abundance, free mankind from disease, maybe even death,、uh, break the shackles of labor where people do not have to work to survive. So it's a very exciting and perhaps even scary time. That was Andy Mark, a tech analyst and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Good Anna. Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye for now. 